the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's not the last day of February. That means it's a leap year. Tuesday, February 28th. But tomorrow is Wednesday. What is it? The 28th? 27th. Rats. I had this great, great intro ready. Good morning, then. It's still Tuesday, but it's Tuesday the 27th. And tomorrow will prove that it's not your normal year because it won't be the last day of the month in February on 28th because we have a February 29th this year. Today is, I'm quite certain, the Michigan primary. And if you're a Democrat and you go out and you vote none of the above, you're voting for peace. You're voting uh, for the poor Palestinians who are uh, being so savagely pursued for their demonstration of force on 10-7. You're voting for the... Um, kidnapped, uh, the kidnappers, if you vote none of the above. That's what Rashida Tlaib wants you to do today. Get out and vote for none of the above and rebuke Joe Biden, which is why Joe Biden yesterday announced that the ceasefire is is really, really close. Like he said, his national security advisor is said it's within a week. Here he is. He's eating ice cream and he's talking about negotiations over the hostages in Gaza, probably in Rafa. Play cut number seven, Joe Biden. Can you give us a sense of when you think that ceasefire will start? Well, I hope by the beginning of the weekend. I mean, the end of the weekend. At least my, my, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. All right. This is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. I, I thought when I read that yesterday, huh, they must have had a breakthrough. And... I don't think there's going to be a breakthrough because Hamas is asking for way, way, way too much. They should be asking for their lives and the right to flee to Iran. And then I open up my Times of Israel this morning and I find that Israeli officials are saying, nah, that's really not going to happen. And then I'm reading Hamas officials. No, they told Reuters that the um, Biden comments are premature and do not match the situation on the ground. And then last I stayed up too late because the commentary podcast was so good yesterday. And I'll play a lot more in part three, but I want to play John Podhoritz, cut number one from the commentary podcast yesterday, talking about the hostage negotiations and how bad the U.S. framework is because Joe Biden wants a ceasefire so badly because of the voting in Michigan today. And this is John, as J-Pod, as we call him, is right on the target. Cut number one. I just want to switch gears uh, because there is there is news about um, uh, Israel over the weekend. Um, it's not really news. 
it's all suggestive. Um, but uh, 10 days ago, Hamas offered some kind of a deal or there was some kind of deal on the table for hostages in exchange for ceasefire. And Bibi said the deal was delusional and that was the end of it. And now America is going back to the Middle East and uh, Egypt and Qatar and <clears throat> America is going to sit down. And the Israeli press was reporting over the weekend that there was movement toward a hostage deal. The only thing that we've seen in public prints about this specifically is the American framework, which is so horrifying that I don't even want to describe it. It's so morally scandalous that it's like, you know, 20,000 Palestinian prisoners for an Israeli dog. I mean, it's like that level of, uh, you know, imbalance that no Israeli could possibly suggest but Netanyahu is 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 in a very delicate dance because the hostage families are uh, restive upset worried you know and the deal as we're seeing it Seth only involves 40 hostages out of the 130 that are still there so why if you were a hostage family you would want them to be pursuing this when it just increases the likelihood that you're family member is going to die in captivity or will never be released or will be another Gilad Shalit and stay there for five years. I don't entirely understand, except I'm not them and I don't know what the psych, you know, the, the unbearable psychic torment that they're under uh, may make them, you know, hope it's sort of like the lottery. You know, it's like maybe you're, you're, you'll win the lottery so you'll put all of your money down because you have nothing else left. Um, and America, an American negotiator gave the game away to, I think, to Axios by saying, we really need this because we really need that ceasefire. Because the idea is there'll be a six week ceasefire. And maybe if there's a six week ceasefire, the war won't start again. So there, the American government, on the one hand, supports the extirpation and destruction of Hamas. And on the other hand, now seems actively to be taking a role in which they want the war to end without Hamas's destruction. So where as an as an analyst of Israeli politics, because what we do doesn't matter. That's the thing that people need to understand now. This is all internally Israel's drama. <clears throat> government can't survive if Hamas isn't destroyed. The government can't survive if the results are um, are uh, insufficiently Heroic in the rescue of the hostages and, and Hamas isn't ruined in a month and a month and a half. And if they're cornered in Rafa, if Hamas is cornered in Rafa, how you could stop so that they can get away, I don't really understand. What's your. Right there, we're going to come back to more of this uh, in segment, later segment. Uh, but I want you to understand Joe Biden made up that one week deadline. He just made it up because there's a Michigan primary today. And he does not want to be embarrassed by none of the above. And there's a large Arab American community that might be pro-Palestinian. Certainly it's pro-Palestinian. It might, some of it might even be pro-Hamas in Michigan that Joe Biden is playing to. You know what else he's doing? You go into the border today. This is, this is really something. I mean, I really, I really find this to be something. Uh, that the chutzpah, as they say, the chutzpah, of Joe Biden going to the border after some people say 9 million contacts and others say 8 million. But both Biden and Trump 
are headed to the border for dueling visits on Thursday. I said today, on Thursday. The Border Patrol Union has slammed Joe Biden. It's too little too late to try to save himself. And they're doing it against the backdrop of the murder of the University of Georgia undergrad, 22-year-old nursing student, Lakin Riley, who was murdered by illegal immigrant from Venezuela, Jose Antonio Ibarra, last week. And another state is completely outraged over the lack of a coherent border policy from Joe Biden. But then he doesn't have a coherent policy on anything. And people are starting to say, do you miss me yet about Donald Trump? On that note, if you head to my my ex account, Hugh Hewitt, on X, a site formerly known as Twitter, you'll see three or four links to my new Fox News column this morning, my Morning Glory column, in which I simply put together Trump's list of proposed key appointees for national security. Now, any column that tells you who might do what in the uh, Trump second term isn't worth the paper it's written on unless that column includes the warning by Susie Wiles and Chris LaCivita. Those are the big two at the Trump campaign. And they put out a statement, my gosh, a couple of months ago that said, efforts by various nonprofit groups are certainly appreciated and can be enormously helpful. Trump campaign senior advisors Susie Wiles and Chris LaCivita said in a statement in November. However, none of these groups or individuals speak for President Trump or his campaign. We will have an official transition effort to be announced at a later date. So what I do is I walk through the list he ought to put out, like he put out the list in 2016 of possible Supreme Court nominees. My new Fox News column puts out the list of possible national security appointees. And I've got a few tweets on it, and they're, the names are all familiar. Uh, some of them won't. I mean, no one will know who Ed McMullen is who was our ambassador to Switzerland. Uh, Very few people will know many of the names on here. These are national security professionals. The national security people will read it. But my point is Trump's team will be so much better than Biden's team on everything that Trump should put out a list of potential appointees, not necessarily name them the cabinet positions. Although I'm a, a big proponent of that. Some people don't want to. They say it removes the incentive of everyone to, to play along. But but at least put out the list like they put out the list in 2016. We don't need Supreme Court nominees. He's proven himself there. But reassure that because this is going to be the respect election, that our enemies will fear and our friends will respect whoever Team, Bi- team Trump is in 2025. Stand by, America. Don't forget to vote, Michigan. I'm Hugh Hewitt, and I'm coming right back to you on this February 27th edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'd like you to please go to HughHewitt.com, find the banner at the top, and send Alliance Defending Freedom $25, $50, $100, bucks, even $10. Or call them at 855-374-4123. 855-374-4123. Because they need your help. The sun is coming up on this Wednesday, the 27th of February, year of our Lord, 2024. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Good morning to all of you. As I told you yesterday, Joe Biden tried to be a magician. He tried to will into existence a ceasefire in the Middle East because voting is underway in Michigan today. 
in the Michigan presidential primary and Rashida Tlaib and other anti-Israel pro-Hamas activists are attempting to persuade Democrats to vote for none of the above as a protest of Joe Biden's policy of sort of supporting Israel. It's not full-throated support. He's trying to impose a ceasefire on Israel. So I was listening yesterday, and, and by the way, the reports this morning in Israeli media are both Hamas and Israel say, hey, this is not happening. We're, we're not close. Because Joe Biden said yesterday, they're very close. My national security advisor says Monday or so. It's not happening. And Joe Biden comment is an attempt to pressure Israel into accepting a terrible deal for the hostages and not going into Rafa. Well, they got to go into Rafa. Everybody in Israel. But I, rather than have me tell you this, I was listening to Henry Olson on the commentary podcast yesterday, analyze with John Podhoritz and Seth Mandel and Abe Greenwald the South Carolina primary results, and it's fa- for 50 minutes, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, fascinating. I, you know, I sold a lot of you on the commentary podcast and you're hooked now. But then at minute 50, they start talking about the hostage deal and the war in Israel. And I already played you J-Pod in the first segment that you've heard. Here's Seth Mandel responding, part one, to what J-Pod said, cut number two. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things going on here. One is that the American position is, the Biden position is, we support Israel. And so uh, if they, the reason that they have switched up their tactics the on the American side uh, to support a long ceasefire is because if the war doesn't restart, it can look like Israel chose not to restart the war. It won't, that way the Americans... Biden will be happy if the war stops, but he's not. It's not that he wants Hamas to live on or doesn't want Hamas to live on when you're the president in an election year. He just wants it to basically go away. If the Israelis choose on their own to stop the war, that's the you know, that's his that's, you know, the Christmas morning for for the president, because then he doesn't have to hear the chatter about him pressuring them from the Israeli side. This is. You know, one thing about the hostage deals over the decades is that they never, through negotiations, they never got better. Okay. What was on offer never got better for Israel. All right. Now, that, that's Seth talking. Now, listen to this exchange between John Podhortz and Seth, cut number three. By the way, and I want to so- stop here. I want to stop here and commend to everybody your piece on hostage taking and its place in in Israeli uh, political, military and social life uh, that is in our March March issue, which is called What Price is Too High, uh, in which you go through the history of this. Anyway, go ahead. And and so the deals you have to remember, you mentioned Gilad Shalit in 2009. Ehud Olmert walked away from a Shalit deal. Uh, and so Shalit had just, been taken prisoner in 2006. So this was three years into Shalit's right. imprisonment. Omer was then the uh, caretaker prime minister about to be ousted by Bibi, walked away from a deal. And then uh, two years later, Bibi made uh, essentially that deal, but slightly more, you know, inflation. Inflation only goes in one direction. There's only yeah. inflation, no deflation when it comes to these prisoner swaps. So, um, you know, at Olmer, the deal that Olmer walked away from was after. So Gilad Shalit was taken and Ehud Olmer was prime minister. So there were two different 
sort of mini wars operations in Gaza to try to find get information about him, find him. Those were unsuccessful. Then two Israelis were taken in the north by Hezbollah. And Olmer was put in a position of, I'm starting to look like punching back. You know, they're taking, Gilad Shalit was the first successful live kidnapping by Hamas of an active duty IDF soldier since Nachshon Waxman in the early 90s. Okay, so Omer was looking like, and so um, in the end, he still walked away from the deal, I guess is my point, because at the end of everything, there's an instinct to at least say, well, in the end, we got him back. Because there's this there's this thing we call objectives, and we said this was an objective. And so Bibi has to, right now, he and the War Council are balancing this idea of objectives and that the hostage families are saying getting the hostages home has to be paramount objective of the war. And so they're being they're being uh, sort of uh, teased here with the possibility of um, offering an end to the war that doesn't that clearly doesn't fully end Hamas, but is still a way to say we achieved what we said we were setting out to achieve right. at the beginning. They're going to be wrong about the way the electorate sees that explanation. But that's the the tantalizing possibility is that you could end a war without winning it and still claim to win it. But, it, right. you know, this is this is not something that's going to um, this. The, the larger Israeli population is not going to buy that this time. Now, let's keep going. Cut number four. Uh, cut number four. Yeah. The whole point here is that Bibi has to be seen, and he made a mistake last week because he was too political mistake, because he was too determined to say, this deal stinks. We're not going further. Hamas is delusional. That wasn't delicate enough. He has to look like the hostages are on his mind at every moment. But he cannot take these deals. His political future and the military, forget his own personal political future, the entire Israeli political system has committed itself to the destruction of Hamas. And a deal that gets back a third of the remaining hostages with a ceasefire that will allow the Hamas fighters trapped in Rafah to escape will be politically catastrophic for everybody in power in Israel. And it is not going to happen. And the thing that American Jews, I think, and American supporters of Israel have to take account of is what we're saying isn't going to, it's going to be bad if Bibi takes the, if, if Biden takes the turn and says he doesn't like Israel anymore and he doesn't like what Israel does, that'll be bad. This is an existential crisis for Israel that has only one ending that will be positive for Israel's not only its own future, but for the political lives and the future of the structure of the country as it stands now, which is Hamas has to be destroyed. Then people are, can, can go home. And and then... One, one more cut, because I'm not going to play the whole podcast. You can get the commentary podcast for yourself. I mean, you really can. But one more cut. This is Abe Greenwald on the deal that isn't a deal because... It's wish casting for unicorns by Team Biden, who faced the Michigan primary today. Cut number five. And that's it's a key necessary. part of the of yeah. the of the essay that I wrote of the piece in the magazine, because what happened was um, the Palestinians, Hamas, especially they figured that out 
how uh, this was the Israeli Achilles heel, that they care about getting the their hostages, soldiers back, right, the yeah. hostages. And so this, um, they turned that Hamas was not, Hamas was not the first to get a big deal, but Hamas figured out that this was a way if they could revolve the conflict more around the, this central focal point of the one thing that gives them an advantage, a strategic advantage, that that would be the smart thing to do. And they did it. And so what they built in Gaza was an underground city where you could hold, you know, these guys and they, and they focused their, their intelligence towards it and whatever. Yeah. Hamas really sort of refocused toward the one, just hitting that Achilles heel over and over again. And, you know, you'll, they'll miss 17 times. And then the 18th time they'll, they'll, they'll hit it really hard. They'll right. strike it. And that makes up for the misses because of the, um, the imbalance yeah. of power. And the other thing I would say is just, I, I, just so people understand the, 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 the way, the idea that people are learning lessons and what lessons they're learning Everybody involved here is the same person as has been involved in the in the past, right? So we mentioned the Gilad Shalit trade in 2011. That was Bibi Netanyahu. Now it's 13 years later, and Bibi Netanyahu is prime minister again and again. Considering this, the Gilad Shalit deal, Yahya Sinwar, who is the the head of Hamas, um, at least militarily and strategically, and plan and was the mastermind of the October 7th attacks was released as part of that deal. Gilad Shalit was kidnapped by a cell operated by Yahya Sinwar's brother. So Sinwar's brother got him out of jail. And then in the 90s, when I mentioned recently, Nachshon Waxman was the previous one before Gilad Shalit. Guess who kidnapped Nachshon Waxman? It was a cell run by Yahya Sinwar. So it is literally the same people, yeah. not just that we've seen this all before. So does anyone, did anyone else know that? Seth Mandel's really smart. I did not know that. That was That's in yesterday's commentary podcast. And this captive bargaining stuff Israel has been through before, and I did not know that the Sinwars were behind it. Two rounds going back to the 90s. Uh, I'll, I'll, let's talk about American Federal for a moment. American Federal is our great sponsor that sells you gold. Uh, Amfed.com uh, or actually it's AmericanFederal.com AmericanFederal.com Their phone number is 800-221-7694 800-221-7694 800-221-7694 Gold went up yesterday, $2,044.90 an ounce at this moment. And it's holding steady because um, the inflation numbers coming out this week are not going to make people happy. The money supply didn't come out till 1 o'clock this afternoon. But consumer confidence, a big deal that comes out today at 10 a.m. Uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot of data that makes you think, I want that gold. AmericanFederal.com. AmericanFederal.com. It's not hard to remember. AmericanFederal.com, and I'll give you the phone number again. 800-221-7694. 800 221 Most of the time. Man who's treated me most of the time is pretty good. And I like him, and he is a smart guy. You, you, and I know exactly where it all went. Welcome back, America. Dylan Trump and me, Hugh Hewitt, joined by Senator Tom Cotton. I'm not sure he'd say most of the time I treat him very nicely, but and I'm sure he's not going to say I'm a smart guy. Good morning, Senator. 
<laughs> no, you, you treat me nicely all the time, but you're correct on the second. Why are you so mean? Why are you so mean to President Trump? You should be nice to him all the time. Dude. I, 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 most of the time, most of the time, I am. Uh, Senator Cotton, I've got an article out at Fox News today, and I think it would be a good idea for the former president to name a list like he did for Supreme Court appointees in 2016, sometime between now and and before the convention of his national security team potential. Not not go job by job, but just put out the 15 people you can look for just to reassure national security conservatives and to put the world on notice that they're going to be a new sheriff in town. What do you think? Well, Hugh, I'll let the president make that decision, uh, whether it's his vice president or any potential cabinet officials or White House officials. Um, that's really his call. Uh, I, I saw your column and... Uh, Many of the people in there I respect tremendously, and I believe the president does as well, and they served him ably the first time around, people like Robert Lighthizer and Robert O'Brien and uh, a handful of others. Um, But I think ultimately that will be the president's goal. Yeah, I just think it's good politics, too, because yesterday on Monday in Politico, they found 18 former Trump officials, and two of them spoke on the record, John Bolton and Dan Coats. They're both mad at Trump. And 16 were anonymous about how they're going to appoint radicals, the national security. No, they're not. They're going to appoint people who are, you know, pro-American, hard-nosed. They're not going to appoint radicals. They're going to appoint Reagan conservatives, don't you think? Um, I do, Hugh. And that's what President Trump was doing in his first term, especially by the end of his first term, when he had people that, that we both respect and that he still respects and whose counsel he still leans upon, like um, Robert Lighthizer and Robert O'Brien, Mike Pompeo and others. So, again, I think it's an unusual circumstance, obviously, that we've only had one other time in this country's history in which a candidate for president doesn't have to say what he will do or would do or might do, but can simply point to what he did. And that's a very compelling case for most Americans. It's like, you know, do you like things better now after four years of Joe Biden, or did you like them back when I was president? Now, they're both going to the border on Thursday. President Trump to clap at what he did and Joe Biden to try and hide what he's done. I was alerted this weekend by some former Trump people to the fact that 40,000 military age Chinese males, Chinese nationals have crossed our southern border in the last 15 months. 40,000. And they are released, you know, sometimes with an ankle bracelet, sometimes with a, you know, a note saying, please show up at X, Y and Z. But. We would never have let 40,000 Soviets into the country when I was in the government, Tom Cotton. What are we thinking? Well, it's just the natural consequences of Joe Biden's open borders policy. Uh, Thousands of military age men, not just from China, but from Russia and from other adversary nations and from God knows where. Uh, You saw one of those consequences just last week in Georgia with the brutal, depraved uh, beating and, and murder of Lake and Riley by an illegal uh, alien. You know, she would still be alive if he wasn't here, which he shouldn't have been, and he was here because of Joe Biden's failed policy. That's true. That There's no doubt about it that we get bad people coming across the border, and they're a significant percentage. They're not like one and two. There's a significant percentage of bad people among the migrants. All of them are entering illegally. But I'm focused for a moment. If you were the Chinese Communist Party, and you're at the Politburo, and you're Xi, wouldn't you say, hey, shouldn't we try and get a bunch of our people into the country since that border's open? Wait, wouldn't they do well, that? Well, but he, he first, on that point, 
Um, it doesn't matter if they're if they are a tiny percentage. I mean, hell, when you've got millions of people coming in every year, you know, one one hundredth of one percent is a exactly lot, a lot of Americans. Um, and again, unfortunately, you know, if you're Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, you look at America and like you don't have to worry about smuggling your spies across our border. Like Joe Biden just lets them fly in and gives them visas to work in their embassies in Washington D.C. or at the United Nations in New York or their consulates around the country. Um, so I, I have no doubt that some of these folks coming in from places like China and Russia are bad guys. And some coming in from places that have trouble with terrorism, they're probably here not just to, uh, you know, try to take our jobs and maybe commit awful, heinous murders, but commit mass murder in the form of terrorism. Again, it's a natural and logical consequence of Joe Biden's open borders. Now, I, I asked our friend Mike Gallagher, who holds the David Dreyer chair that you once held uh, and is now on the House Intel Committee, he's going to retire I asked him whether or not the the idea of spies coming across the border was far-fetched, and he agreed to ask Ray how many people, Christopher Ray, director of the FBI for the benefit of the Steelers fan, how many people he had working on counterintelligence now, and Ray wouldn't answer him. And I'm worried that we got a lot of FBI agents looking into rad-trad Catholics at Latin Mass and not enough doing counterintelligence. What do you think, Senator Cotton? Well, yeah, I mean, if you have more, if you have one, that's too many of them. But, yeah, I do believe that the FBI is, is still uh, focused on chasing ghosts and, and, you know, so-called, you know, domestic violent extremists or radical traditional Catholics who are going to Latin Mass or um, you know, evangelical preachers who are singing hymns outside abortion clinics, as opposed to what the real job is, which should be stopping these cartels that are poisoning our people, conducting counterintelligence uh, against uh, threats like Russia and China and Iran and Cuba, um, and chasing after serious uh, criminals. The FBI, uh, while it has many fine agents across the country out on the front lines, has badly misplaced priorities and is in need for significantly uh, changed and improved culture, which can only really come with change leadership. Now, Senator Cotton, the State of the Union is coming up. Joe Biden is coming. Maybe he'll get through the speech. Maybe he won't. Uh, I'm sure he'll rest up for that. And he might. Uh, the expectations are so low that if he doesn't fall over, it'll be acclaimed uh, the speech of the century by our left wing media. The choice of the respondent. Who makes that, Senator Cotton? And and would you recommend the former president? Because he is the presumptive nominee. He will be officially the presumptive nominee after Super Tuesday. But he's going to win Michigan tonight, and he's won. That'll be four in a row. Would you let the former president, would you think it would be a good idea for whoever makes that choice to ask the former president to do it? Well, typically that choice is the Speaker of the House in consultation with the Republican leader in the Senate. Again, I I would defer to President Trump on how he wants to run his campaign and what he thinks is the best decision on this or that day for the campaign. I'm not sure that that he would think that about the response to the State of the Union. on your point about Joe Biden's State of the Union, um, which is going to be given a little bit later than he's normally allowed out in public, I, I just want to stress that, yes, Joe Biden is old and infirm and not up to doing the job of president. But the main problem with Joe Biden is not that he's old, it's that he's liberal. Uh, and Joe Biden could be 20 years younger and sprightly, and the American people would still be struggling to pay grocery bills and rent, and our border would still be open and we'd still be a laughingstock in the world. So Joe Biden may step over the very low bar set for him in that speech, but it's not going to change his failed presidency at all. That, that is absolutely true. But we will, I predict, 
if he gets through the speech without a magnificent error, the sort of error that, you know, you can't forget, uh, they'll they'll proclaim that he's back. Biden is sure, back. And, and, and that'll happen again, again and again this year. It'll, at the State of the Union, at his uh, convention speech, um, at the debates, as, as long as he you know, doesn't freeze up or forget where he is or where he is. You know, I, I had someone tell me over the weekend after a, a Joe Biden speech, he acts like a Roomba. I think I was watching a Sean bit, and he wanders around like a Roomba. Did we lose you there, Senator Cotton? You're still there. No, no, I'm here, Sam. Okay, so my, my next question has to go to uh, the Ukraine bill in the House. I know you voted against it. Any chance of that coming back with amendments that would incline you to vote for it? Yeah, I certainly hope so, Hugh. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see some genuine border reforms on the bill, and I'd like to see a, a bill that takes out about, uh, I think it was about $19 billion in non-defense aid to include um, almost half of that being eligible to go to uh, Gaza, which really means to go to Hamas. So uh, I'd like to address all the priorities the bill began to address and didn't quite do the job for me, which was securing our border and helping our friends in Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. So if Johnson and um, Hakeem Jeffries got together and they added something for Republicans, which would be the rescission you're talking about, and maybe the wall, and something for Democrats, more aid for migrant-impacted cities. Do you think that would get through the House and the Senate? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure about bailing out sanctuary cities in the bill. We didn't do that uh, in the legislation that was initially proposed. But I do think that if, if Joe Biden will do what he should have done from October, which is sit down and negotiate with Mike Johnson about a bill that uh, he and the House of Representatives can pass, then certainly it will pass the Senate. All right. If he does that, I hope that's what they do. Do you think the government is going to shut down? Well, I hope it doesn't. Uh, there's no reason for it to. Um, I, I think President Biden and the Democrats haven't yet accepted the reality of divided government. Um, the House passed legislation that reflects the House and priorities, and that means the Democrats in the Senate and the White House are going to have to accept some of those priorities. I mean, hell, Chuck Schumer hasn't even accepted some of the priorities of the Senate. You know, our, the bill that we passed earlier this year to fund the Department of Veterans Affairs had a measure in there to protect veterans' gun rights, and the Democrats are insisting that that be dropped. Well, and pass out of the Democratic Senate. They're demanding that their own bills provisions be dropped out of the bill. So I, yeah. I think if the, the White House and the Senate uh, Democrats will accept the reality of divided government, and we should be able to pass you know, four funding bills by this Friday and then hopefully eight by next Friday. Last question, Senator Cotton. We've got Joe Biden saying a ceasefire is at hand, but Israeli media says, no, it's not. And Hamas said, no, it's not. What's he doing? They, I mean, I think he's endangering the hostages. Well, yeah, the only ceasefire Joe Biden is worried about is a ceasefire between himself and his own party's voters in Michigan. Huh. Um, you know, that state has a primary today, and Joe Biden is worried about being embarrassed because there's a large Arab-American population, a lot of progressives in Detroit and university towns, and there's an effort to not vote for Joe Biden. So all of this, you know, kind of uh, clueless rambling while he's out getting an ice cream cone, making a fool of himself about a ceasefire, is about a ceasefire between him and his own party's voters because they're not close to a ceasefire in Israel. And the proposals that the Biden administration are making, if you believe the reports, are preposterous. That you'd stop the fighting for weeks, if not months, and basically empty your jails of every Palestinian terrorist in exchange, not for not even all the Israeli terrorists who are held in yeah. by Hamas. I don't know if you listen to commentary podcasts. Yesterday, John Podhort said the American framework is 4,000 Palestinian prisoners for an Israeli dog. And I mean, it really is bad. It's a terrible framework, but we're not surprised. Senator Tom Cotton, thank you as always. Send Tom Cotton on X. 
America, bonjour, hi, Canada. On this, the day of the Michigan primary, I've got Brett Baer, host of Special Report, chief political anchor at Fox News. Good morning, Brett. How are you? Morning, you. Doing well. Now, when I was last in Michigan, I would play the blue and the gold courses with my my friend Philip, and I would play them badly. Have you ever played the blue and the gold courses at the U? No, I've never. Oh, they're long and they're cold and they're awful. So I always took along a real golfer. And as is appropriate, there are four kinds of golfers. I have a question for you. There's a they're good, good golfers. You, the former president, and people who can get around and very close to par, if not under. There are bad, good golfers who can you know shoot around eighty to maybe sometimes eighty five. There are good, bad golfers who are 85 to 105 or so. And then there are bad, bad golfers. I'm in the last category, so I am useful as a caddy <laughs> riding along and not hitting. That tends to force them into a threesome and you move fast. That's what I did this weekend. I am curious, as a good, good golfer, what are you really thinking when you get stuck with a bad, bad golfer who wants to play? Um. I am thinking, what's his handicap, and can he make a par to help the team? Okay, and if they can't, are you thinking, why don't you just ride along? Uh, as long as they're fast. No, there you go. Fast. Not yeah. looking for every ball. I, there, I, I confirm my I confirm my total premise that I established this weekend on a golf course. Now let's turn to Michigan. What number tonight of uh, none of the above or uncommitted on the Democratic side alarms President Biden. You know, I think anything north of what Dean Phillips got in uh, New Hampshire, uh, I think if it's at all close, it's a really big, you know, big story. And, you know, it's different. It's not a writing campaign. It's it's on the ballot, uncommitted. And so... It's, um, you know, depending on how people feel, uh, you could see something that's pretty embarrassing. That's what I, I think the real story tonight's on the Democratic side. I think President Trump's going to beat Ambassador Haley again, probably handily. You'll report that. Are you doing another special live tonight? Go as long as it goes. We're going to do cut-ins, cut-ins tonight, and I'll, I'll be on the uh, wrap-up show at 11. Okay, so you'll be there to tell us whether or not there was a surprise on the Republican side, but I'm watching that uncommitted number tonight. And that is because Rashid Tlaib is out there urging people to vote uncommitted on the basis of that. Is that why you think the president, I, let me put, I don't want to put that, my opinion, in the form of the question. I have opined he declared a ceasefire as imminent in Israel because he wants to keep that uncommitted number down. What's your reporting tell you about whether or not a ceasefire is imminent, Brett Baer? I, I think it's where it was, and I agree by saying that. You know, it, it sparked some hope, and it's amazing that it was said the day before the Michigan primary. But um, uh, we don't know. I think that there are negotiations ongoing, and, you know, it, it, throwing it out there ahead of that definitely may dilute some of that. Now, yeah, the overnight on the Times of Israel reports, both Hamas spokesmen and government spokesmen have thrown cold water on the idea that they're close. Hamas said, no, we're not close. And the Israeli news, Channel 12 and others, they're not close. What do you think? Do you think there's actually a deal and ought there to be a deal? Because I'm, I'm not a big favor of giving away uh, people with, as the Israelis say, blood on their hands in exchange for hostages. Yeah, I think that there's uh, negotiations ongoing. Whether there should be a deal or not, I think uh, uh, Israel is 
still trying to get to the leadership of Hamas underneath Gaza. And um, I think that there is an expiration date of how long it can go. Now, what that date is and if it shifts, you know, I think senior Israeli officials believe that that a large portion of the remaining hostages are dead, as sad as that sounds, but uh, that's what they believe. And so, you know, I think that there will be an effort to get to an end game here, but it's probably not going to be immediate. Yeah, I, I just don't see it happening. So I switched to the second issue that may drive today's result in Michigan, which is the border. Malugian's amazing. I mean, if we have all-star awards at the at the Fox News Central, you're going to give one to Malugian because I think he really put this issue on the map. You were talking about it on Saturday night. We were watching your coverage after the South Carolina par- uh, uh, primary with Martha with a bunch of, of Trump folk. And I was amazed about the Chinese numbers, which they then immediately confirmed. 40,000 adult Chinese males have crossed our border in the last 15 months, whereas it used to be a rather rare event. 40,000, Brett. And Bill has figured that out and reported that. Are you surprised by that number? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, you know, it's it's it could be very easily that they're escaping their country, and that's how they're coming in. However, it, it raises a lot of red flags, and it's not just China. I mean, it's it's everywhere over the map uh, of significant numbers, north of 5,000 from Tajikistan. I mean, that's not a great number to see because some of these countries um, obviously are red flags for terrorists. Well, I go back to, to the Reagan years when I was last – held any kind of classification. And I and I know that we would never have allowed 40,000 Soviets to cross the, the southern border in the Reagan administration. We just wouldn't have allowed it. They would have been put in detention because you don't know. And they've all got to be vetted. We would go crazy about vetting one Russian that showed up. And I, I think maybe the Biden administration isn't aware that the CCP might be wanting to infiltrate people into the country. Have you ever heard Mayorkas or anybody voice this? No, I mean, I, I've heard concerns about numbers, but not specifics of people. You know, look, fentanyl is getting in in huge quantities, killing our people, uh, let alone we don't know uh, people getting in with uh, malintent. So uh, I think it's a really big problem. And obviously, Hugh, it is now the number one issue every state that we have seen. And I imagine it's going to be the number one issue in Michigan as well. Well, they're both going to the border this week uh, on Thursday. Both former President Trump and current President Biden are both going to the border. Do you think there's any way Joe Biden changes the public's perception of his border policies? Because I don't think it's possible. No, I don't think so. And in fact, the White House is already forecasting that he's not going to issue executive orders on this trip. Um, You know, I don't you don't know why, because he could have done it on day one. uh, But. He's not doing it, they say. Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think that it, the the cat is is out. I mean, it's 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 a issue that people really think is is a big problem, not just in border states or red states, but in sanctuary states and blue states. Now, uh, do you have any reporting on what Mike Johnson's going to do with this Ukraine-Taiwan Defense Department and Israel aid supplemental? I, I'm hoping he attaches a couple of Christmas tree items, something the Republicans want like the wall, something the Democrats want like funding for the cities impacted by the migrants. But it, is it just dead, 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 or is it negotiation time? 
I think it's negotiation. I think it's um, there's still some some thought that uh, this thing is is at least uh, beating, and it's going to go back with something. Uh, I think there's a bipartisan effort uh, to try to get some kind of skinny package uh, through, even if uh, the speaker is not not for it. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of rumors up on the Hill that uh, that former president might do the uh, State of the Union response. You know, that oh. would be quite something. Oh, that would be yeah. interesting. That would actually outrank Biden's. That, that would get better ratings than Biden's. <laughs> so, I mean, so, if that happens, it would be Mike Johnson saying, "Look over here at the shiny thing, and let's get some stuff done." Yeah. All right. Uh, last question, Brett Barry. You're coming on tonight, six to seven, normal hour for a special report. What are you doing again on Michigan coverage? Uh, so we're doing cut-ins. Uh, we we expect it's going to be a little bit later because. Uh, some of those places in Michigan close later. So we'll be doing cut-ins, and then I'll do a full wrap-up at uh, on Trace's show. All right. Thank you very much, Brett Bear. We'll be watching tonight. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Having switched over to headphones because my bumblebee has shorted out on me. We will get new Bumblebee. David Drucker of the Dispatch never shorts out on me. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Good to see you. Uh, David, the Michigan primaries today, Rashida Tlaib and others are leading an effort to have Democrats write in none of the above. It's actually an option. None of the above never gets much, but they want none of the above as a protest vote against Joe Biden. What is a a uh, minor defeat for the president in terms of percentages of none of the above. What is a seismic event for the president in terms of the lowest number that's a seismic event for President Biden in terms of none of the above? Yeah, really good question. I think they refer to it in Michigan as uncommitted versus Nevada, where it is none of the above. Um, it's hard to tell because so much of this he was expectations. I was looking into this a little bit yesterday. Apparently in 2012, I believe President Barack Obama received a, a vote uh, or, or suffering, you might say, a, a 10% uncommitted uh, didn't really matter at the end of the day for him, not in Michigan anyway. Uh, but um, but we'll have to see how what the number is and how this is interpreted. Obviously, Michigan is one of those states where the Israel issue uh, cuts both ways. As I've told you before, there's a lot of focus on Arab Americans and the Dearborn area and other parts of Michigan, uh, the, these, these communities were Republican voters until 9-11. And between 9-11 and I think George W. Bush's really strong embrace of Israel compared to past Republican presidents who were supportive, but but not as, as much as, as George W. Bush, 
they you know turned into a Democratic Party constituency. Uh, there, a lot of them are very upset with with how the president has handled uh, Israel since October seventh. At the same time, and I keep reminding people, the Detroit suburbs are full of. Uh, Jewish voters. Um, they're full of Jewish voters that, that, like most Jews in America, tend to vote for Democrats most of the time, if not all the time. And so it's not even as simple as the president saying, okay, never mind, I'll, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do, because the, he, could, he could suffer, you know, in November, at the very least, steep losses in the, in the Detroit suburbs if he's not careful, or, or at least, you know, people could sit on their hands, or who knows what they would do. So we'll see how this turns out. Now, yesterday he said, uh, my national security advisor says we're going to have a ceasefire in Israel maybe Monday. Now, I read the Israeli press fairly closely. I listen to Dan Senor. I listen to Commentary Pod. Most importantly, I listen to Times of Israel podcast and other podcasts out of Israel in English. And they are not close to a ceasefire. In fact, they're very far apart from a ceasefire. The, the proposed terms by Hamas are outrageous, and Israel's not doing that. But Bibi's doing this delicate dance. Henry Olson then chimed in. He was a guest on the commentary pod yesterday. BB is playing Biden. What do you think? Well, you know, I think part of the challenge for the president is that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is so well-defined in American politics and sort of polarizing in his own right uh, in American politics. Uh, he as you know, we all know he did. He did not get along. His relationship with Barack Obama wasn't good and vice versa, however you want to look at it. They didn't get along with each other. And and so even as the president tries to manage uh, his handling of Israel for domestic political consumption, Democrats generally and I've, you know, I've listened to Democratic podcasts, um, including with Democratic operatives and activists that are very sympathetic to President Biden and want him to succeed. And they believe that he should jettison uh, Netanyahu and essentially uh, take it, go a different direction on Israel because Netanyahu can't be trusted. Right. So that's from their perspective. Um, So I I don't know that that Netanyahu is necessarily playing Biden. And I don't know that Biden is necessarily saying directly, you got to go in a different direction. I think what the president is trying to do is is manage his domestic political situation, which is very challenging because of where the Democratic base is on Israel, while still, you know, threading the needle for so many Americans that are supportive of Israel, uh, particularly after October 7th. All right. Now, I've got a new column over at Fox News urging Team Trump to put out a list. Now, he put out in 2016 a list of possible Supreme Court nominees. I'd like to see his national security list. And it doesn't have to be this guy and this gal is going here and there, but just a list of people who will be in the top jobs at at defense, at state, at national security advisor. Do you think he'll do that? Now, Chris LaCivita and Susie Wilde says nobody who isn't us gets any. I have, This isn't from them. This is me saying this, these are the strong minded people that would be acceptable to Trump, acceptable to the national security environment acceptable on policy. Do you think he'll do anything like this, David Drucker? I don't know, because he doesn't need to necessarily, or at least the very least, he doesn't believe he needs to, right? Because he's been the president before. And I think as far as he's concerned, he's proven uh, that he belongs in the chair. Whereas in 2016, there were so many concerns about him ideologically on the right, and just generally, could he 
could he function as president? There was a utility to it. Um, and then he's also got to balance his constituency of populists and conservatives. They don't agree a lot when it comes to national security these days. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue talking about this. I think the difference is that January 6th happened, and people want to know who's going to run defense, CIA, DNI, FBI, Justice AG, and we need to know based on January 6th. We'll, we'll continue talking about it. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Live on this Tuesday, February 27th, voting has begun in Michigan. Byron York of Fox News and, of course, the Washington Examiner joins me. Byron, the Rashida Tlaib-led forces who are down on Joe Biden for not siding with Hamas want Democrats in Michigan to vote none of the above or uncommitted, whatever it is that that shows that they're they're mad. Uh, What is the point? What percentage alarms Joe Biden if it comes in? Well, I think it's going to be really, really small. I just don't think it's going to be a big matter. Now, uh, one thing you can look at is what happened in New Hampshire, where there were activists who urged people to write in ceasefire in the Democratic primary. Now, remember, the Democratic primary was kind of an unofficial primary. The the, uh, DNC had not recognized it. But there was a write-in campaign to write in Joe Biden's name. On the other hand, it was kind of a, a blank ballot in that score, so it, it was, it, it's interesting to see. Well, look, I'm, as you were talking to David Drucker, I went to the New Hampshire Secretary of State office. So Joe Biden got 79,100 write-in votes in the Democratic primary. Nikki Haley got 4,760 write-in votes in the Democratic primary. Donald Trump got 2,079 write-in votes in the Democratic primary. And ceasefire, which is what the... Uh, pro-Hamas activists wanted, got 1,500, huh. which, which is a little more than the miscellaneous category, yeah. which was 1,300. You know, people who wrote in like Taylor Swift or something. Um, so now you say, well, of course, Rashida Tlaib wasn't in New Hampshire, and she is a member of Congress, one of 14 from Michigan. But I, I just don't see it being a really big factor in the Michigan primary results. So if it came in at what percent would you be shocked? Oh, if it came in at, you know, 5%, something like that. All right. So that's that's the number I'm looking for, because she's laying out all of her, her chips. And Joe Biden yesterday announced a ceasefire is imminent. There is no ceasefire imminent, Byron. That shocked me. But I listened to the commentary podcast and they took it apart. And then last night we had both uh, Israeli news leaking all over the place. No, there is no deal. And then Hamas said there is no deal. So Joe Biden is clueless about what the deal is, or he's just making stuff up for political reasons. What do you think it is? Well, I think it would be the the latter, don't you? I mean, yeah. it would be if he were just clueless, this would be kind of an accident, and it just. But, but in fact, it just happens to be happening right on the eve of the Michigan primary, where the Middle East is probably the, the it's the state where the Middle East is the biggest issue uh, in a primary, even though, of course, the economy remains uh, a bigger issue. Uh, with Michigan voters. Now, Byron, I've also got a new Fox News column up that makes a simple argument that whereas in 2016, Donald Trump reassured conservatives by putting out his list of potential Supreme Court nominees, this year he ought to reassure security-minded voters, people who are pro-Israel, people who are pro-national defense. Here's what my national security team is going to come from. Not name positions. He doesn't want to do that, I'm told. 
uh, and I'm pretty wired into Trump world. Uh, he doesn't want to do that because he wants many people thinking they might get the job and out there raising money for him. But a list of people he might select. Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea for him to do that? Well, I think it's it's not going to happen for a more practical reason. Uh, Trump, especially later in his term, uh, had difficulty getting people to uh, to accept jobs for him. The people who were you know qual there are not that many people who are qualified to be the Secretary of Defense or the, the Attorney General. I mean, it's not it's just not a huge pool, uh, and he had very d- a difficult time getting people to actually uh, work for him. Now, he didn't have as much trouble, of course, with lifetime appointments to the federal judiciary, and that's the list that he put out in 2016, his Supreme Court list. Um, but it's, it would be just much more difficult for uh, cabinet serve at the pleasure of the president um, positions. Now, if Chris LaCivita or Susie Wiles, and those are the big two, those are the only two that matter, if they call up Mike Pompeo and say, we want to float you out there as SecDAF, or they call up John Ratcliffe and they say, we want to float you out there as AG or Tom Cotton as AG or, or a whole bunch, Rick Grinnell as Secretary of State, we, want to, we just want to float you out there. Do you object? They won't object. I mean, the people who stuck with Trump through to the end and have stayed with him, Pompeo dallied with the presidential race but backed away from it. So I'm sure he's back in the good graces of the former president. What? What do you think they'd say? I think they'd say, yes, absolutely. They're not going well, yeah, to turn they, him down. If, if, yeah, if they previously if they previously worked with Trump and it didn't end badly, uh, yes, they would. You know, as far as uh, Cotton is concerned, I mean, his name was floated for a lot of things, but he's uh, an elected senator from Arkansas, and he never took, took a job if it was offered. Um, but as far as the ones who actually worked for him and it didn't end badly, yeah, of course they'd say yes. Yeah, and I think it would help him. On the Venn diagram of people who are serious, uh, that our enemies would fear and our allies would respect. I had someone tell me recently, hard to be the friend of the United States when Trump's in power because we demand a lot. It's easy to be a friend of the United States when Joe Biden's in power because we don't demand anything. You know, they do what you want. We might be disappointed, but we're, we're not upset unless your name is Israel. Uh, but that Trump is a difficult ally because he demands like NATO people put in their two percent. And he gets mad when you don't. So I, I think national security is going to matter a lot. And this is going to be the respect election. Who is going to be more respected by our enemies and, and by our allies? Who's going to be feared by our enemies, Biden or Trump? Uh, although the border is going to matter quite a lot as well. And I, let's turn there. Uh, both candidates are going to the border on Thursday. Whom does it hurt? Whom does it help? Well, it helps Trump and it hurts Biden. I mean, the idea, if Biden thinks that he can somehow undo the damage that he has done in three-plus years at the border, if he can just sort of undo this now, um, he's nuts. I mean, it, it, it's pretty – even even members of what used to be called the mainstream press have had to um, uh, recognize what a disaster this is. The murder case in Georgia is just going to get bigger. I mean, it's just going to get bigger because it's directly attributable to Biden's policies. And so this hurts him a lot. And, of course, Trump looks better. I mean, uh, remain in Mexico looks better uh, now that Biden, you know, I, uh, abandoned it, leading to an absolute disaster. By the way, what what number do you use for the number of people who have crossed illegally into the United States since those that we've right. encountered, eight million on its way to nine million, the number of gotaways is not known. 
But eight okay. eight million over three years going towards nine million now rather rapidly. The other number that I yep. think is important that I had confirmed for me this weekend, forty thousand Chinese males, most of whom are unaccompanied and of military age, have crossed the border in the last fifteen months. Uh, yep. and have had encounters. Forty thousand and prior to that it was nothing. Chinese males coming. Bill Malugin, Bill Malugin pointed this out the other day that in fiscal year twenty four, in other words, since uh, October the first of last year. Uh, the number of illegal crossers from China has exceeded the number of illegal crossers from Mexico in the last year. And Malugin said, you know, I wanted to cover the border. I wanted to cover this issue. I worked on my Spanish, and now I realized I should have been working on Mandarin. Yeah, that's um, it. And those folks need to be, every one of them needs to be detained. Uh, they are our number one enemy in the world. We would never, in the, in the height of the Cold War, we would never have allowed 40,000 Soviets to enter the country without... Oh, and come they're on, being throw. released into the United States every single day. No, it's, it's astonishing. The promise, the promise that Biden made and the promise that Biden has kept, which is that if you come to the United States illegally, if you cross into the United States illegally, you will be allowed to stay. And for the large majority of people who do that... That has turned out to be true since January 20th, 2021. Let me also ask, Byron, do you think the issue of girls and uh, boys and girls sports, the Vermont Christian school that had to forfeit its game because they would not play against a Vermont high school that had a, uh, a boy who had become a girl play center and much bigger and more physical. They said, we're not doing that. They got banned by the Vermont Principals Association. The Alliance Defending Freedom is suing on their behalf, and they'll probably win. But I think that issue, like the immigration issue, is on a lot of people's minds. What do you think? Yeah, certainly among independents. I mean, we know it's among on Republicans' minds. Um, but it's a, it's a big issue, I think, uh, with independents. And, and a number of Democrats, I think, are going to be uncomfortable with the whole idea. And uh, c- clearly, just as we've seen a, um, a lessening of intensity behind uh, uh, DEI, behind uh, sort of corporate DEI and diversity uh, efforts, uh, I think we're going to see a lessening of intensity behind um, uh, gender-affirming care and the kind of... Uh, Orwellian programs that we've seen in the Biden administration. Not in Vermont. We haven't seen that lessening, but I do believe at the polls we will see it. The suburban mom, they want their girls to play basketball without getting hurt. That's pretty much what I think. Byron York. want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that, because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is... A, and it's healthy. It's wise. It's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's... 864 864- 644-1900. That music means Admiral Savrita says, join the Hugh Hewitt Show, United States Navy, retired former allied Supreme Commander of NATO, former head of Southern Command. Good morning, Admiral. Good to have you back. Good to be with you, Hugh. I want to start with the good news, which is yesterday Hungary's parliament voted yes, and Sweden is now an official member of NATO. Uh, they joined a little bit probably a year after Finland joined. How important 
is Sweden's accession to the NATO agreement? It's huge. And uh, I'll give you three reasons. One is that uh, it is part of consolidating the northern flank against Russia. And so here you have Sweden backing up Finland, as you just mentioned, came in. All of that kind of adds uh, 600, 700 miles of border that Putin now has to contend with. So geography. Number two, uh, military capability. Swedes are a small nation, only 5 million or so. They make the Gripen fighter, which I commanded a, a squadron of those when they were employed uh, alongside NATO against uh, Libya. And they are extraordinary, at least as good as our uh, Hornets, our FNA-18s. So real military capability. And by the way, they're special forces, second to none. They were so good that occasionally when I went to Afghanistan as Supreme Allied Commander, we would tell the Swedes to provide the enclosed security detail. They're that good, uh, as good as our SEALs, I would say. And then thirdly, it's the political signal. It is uh, saying to Putin that your actions in invading Ukraine have caused not only 300,000 Russian casualties on the battlefield, not only 500,000 young Russian men who have left Russia to avoid the draft. But politically, you have caused Sweden, a nation that's been essentially neutral for a couple of centuries, to sign up with NATO alongside Finland. And, and to close, the Russians know the Finns and the Swedes very well from combat in the 1930s when the Soviet Union tried to invade Finland uh, they fought the winter war there, the Finns on the front lines, the Swedes backing them up. It's a powerful one-two punch for NATO. It took longer than it should have because of Hungary and Turkish intransigence. Finally, that was overcome. Now NATO is complete with 32 nations. It's a big deal. Now I want to ask you, I thought you were going to say that they have good submarines as well. It was my understanding that they make a very lethal submarine and that the Russians have to worry about those. That's right. It's a, a lethal diesel boat. And what this also does, back to geography, but to your point, it consolidates the entire Baltic Sea. Now, all the nations along that Baltic Sea are NATO nations, with one exception, very small one, which is Russia, St. Petersburg. The rest of the Baltic is now a NATO sea. It's a maritime boundary that Putin has to contend with as well. All right, the second thing, we talked last week briefly, and a lot of the Steelers fans were confused when I said LCS, littoral combat ship. So I thought I'm going to ask you to explain the long and dreary history in five minutes or less of the LCS, which began in 2008. We most recently built one uh, and commissioned one in September of 2023, the Augusta. Uh, and there are two more slated on the books. The littoral combat ship has widely regarded as a failure why? What happened here, Admiral? It, it's a failure uh, strategically, uh, tactically, and operationally. And what I mean by that is uh, tactically, it we built it uh, as the name implies for littoral combat operations. But we were building it during the forever wars, thinking that these ships would fight in relatively uncontested waters. You know, Al-Qaeda doesn't have a Navy. The Islamic State doesn't have a Navy. And the idea was that these littoral combat ships would be 
inexpensive, would be uh, capable of going very close to the shore. They have very shallow drafts, and they were not going to be in a high-threat environment. That calculation turned out to be wrong with the Cold War coming back, the return of great power competition. Russia, China, even Iran, uh, North Korea have very lethal coastal systems, so they're tactically harder to defend. Operationally, when you shift to think of the the broad picture here, we never quite got the so-called mission packages right. The idea was that there'd be interchangeable mission packages, uh, equipment that you could trade out. One package would do anti-ship stuff. One package would do anti-submarine stuff. One package would do counter-mine uh, mine sweeping, in effect. Those packages never really got put together in a capable way. And so the operational sweep of the class just never came to fruition. And then strategically, they turned out to cost a lot more than we thought they were going to. Um, They have very small crews that really couldn't do the maintenance. They relied on shore uh, maintainers. And the whole package has turned out very, very poorly overall. Of all the ship classes I've seen in my long career. I came into the Navy as the Spruance class destroyers came on, then the Ticonderoga class cruisers, the Arleigh Burke destroyers, our big deck amphibs. All of them have been very successful. This class has been a failure. I think it's time to acknowledge that. Now, I got to ask you, because our mutual friend Jerry Hendricks was briefing me on Charlie Wilson innovating in the 1950s and the Eisenhower years and being demanding like a car man that he was a new generation. What's the what's coming next? What's the new model? Uh, We gave this to Lockheed to build this LCS. And I think of Lockheed as aircraft. And I don't know why we gave a new ship to Lockheed. What would you do? What, you know, if you give one piece of advice, either to Team Biden or to Team Trump, whoever takes over the Pentagon in 2025, what one piece of advice on acquiring a new Navy and new ships would you give them? Um, well, let's go back to Charlie Wilson in innovation. I would say now is the time to, uh, to truly innovate in the next class of destroyer. And I think the principal system there has to be lasers. Um, If you watch what's happening off the coast of the Red Sea, where our our magnificent destroyers are knocking down drones and knocking down incoming cruise missiles, but economically, every one of those anti-air missiles costs a couple of million dollars, and it costs us one or even two of those. We tend to shoot, shoot, look, and then if we miss, shoot again, you can have up to three missiles going after a single drone that costs a couple of hundred bucks. So uh, we need a less expensive, more innovative system, and that means lasers. I think additionally, Hugh, all these ships are going to have to have better cybersecurity to operate in an AI-threatening environment. And then third and finally, um, we do need to get to lower manning on these ships, and that's a cost issue as well as a risk issue. Why send 350 sailors into harm's way if you could use AI, cyber effectively uh, to have a ship that only had 50 or so sailors? We didn't do that successfully with the LCS, but I think low manning has to be part of what's coming next. Those would be three things at the top of my shopping list. So, Admiral, how do you get that done? Because it seems to me that 
both Democrats and Republicans want the Navy to work. They might argue about missions and where they're deployed once they get out there, but they want the. How do you get the procurement and design system fixed at DOD? I have to say the good old fashioned way, which is to inject more competition into it. And here's the good news. Um, To some degree, that's happening, certainly in cyber, AI, advanced uh, laser concepts. You don't have to be a big, huge defense prime, as the saying goes, like Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics in order to very effectively uh, create some of these new systems. So I think the there'll be a natural higher level of competition. So that would be point one. And then point two is uh, to continue the efforts to work with the big companies, the primes, because you're still going to need the big folks to build the nuclear uh, submarines, for example. You know, a, a smaller firm isn't going to be able to build a nuclear submarine So you're still going to have to work with the primes. And here I look at what uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks has been doing, really pushing the primes. Um, And and then third and finally, get some very experienced uh, former CEOs of some of these big companies, people like Wes Bush, who ran Northrop Grumman, or Marilyn Hewson, who ran uh, Lockheed Martin, get them back into the game in the Pentagon, bring in uh, real talent, people who've been on the front lines uh, to advise and uh, give the government advocacy in dealing with some of these really big defense contracting companies. What about another Charlie Wilson who came from General Motors, right? And famous for saying what if it's good for General Motors, it's good for the United States of America. But what about going into other big industries? We're not really known for car making anymore. And I doubt we want Elon Musk at the Pentagon, though. Who knows? Uh, what about that background, uh, Admiral? Oh, I think that absolutely has salience. And, um, you know, frankly, we could do worse than looking at some of the ideas Elon is using uh, at SpaceX. I was just talking to a retired two-star Admiral who is part of his team at SpaceX and Um, sounds pretty good to me. And look at what's happening in the space industry. That's an example of where, quote, smaller firms are really making a difference, both in production of satellites and space systems, but in the case of of Elon Musk and his company actually launching these things, uh, evidently quite effectively into space. And look at the, the small company that just put a lunar landing craft on the moon. So, Uh, Yes, I think the idea of uh, bringing in people, particularly from the innovative parts of the U.S. economy and turning them loose on the Pentagon would make a lot of sense. You know, we are doing that with Palantir and Anderol and and Vanivir. There are a bunch of AI companies that are coming out of the private sector very quickly. We got less than a minute, Admiral. What about buying Griffins and buying uh, Swedish submarines and just saying we're going to use I know that they have different. Intel requirements, but why don't we buy off the shelf what's made well other places? 100% in agreement. I used to look with uh, great envy at the Spanish uh, F-100 frigate, which is an Aegis uh, frigate-sized system, um, or the Japanese. They make uh, phenomenal uh, destroyers over there, also with the Aegis system. 
diesel submarines in order to really take a look at. So I, for once, say, yeah, go global. Admiral, good to see you as always. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.